Could we kindly open our Bibles this morning to uh, John's Gospel? I'm going to spend the next few months going through a portion of John's Gospel. Um, this is not topical. This will be expository preaching. But we're going to consider a portion which I think uh, bears visiting yet again. Um, and a special light of uh, things that have been kind of putting under discussion in our circles, in our Bible studies and elsewhere in the last few months. I think it's good for us to revisit those things that the Bible is clear on. So before I read uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your grace in our lives, and we know that we are privileged beyond what we deserve to just be here this morning, to be under your word, and as the Spirit who indwells us will illuminate your pages of your word to us, we thank you for that privilege that we have. We don't read blindly, neither, neither we lift up to our own understanding, but He, your Spirit, makes your word plain to us. We pray that your words, the words that we hear may not just go in by our ears, but that they may indeed be embedded in our hearts, so the lives we live may reflect the work of Christ in us. We pray for this in Jesus' name, for his sake alone. Amen. John chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 21 verses of this chapter. And we're not going to get through 21 verses today. It's not my intention to do that. But I think it's time that we maybe just read it again. And as we go through this portion by God's grace, uh, get to understand what John is saying here. Verse 1, John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We continue to pray God's blessing on the reading of his word, and as we expound it to our hearts this morning. I grew up in evangelical circles as far as I can remember. When I opened my eyes and could remember things, I was in Sunday schools and in gospel meetings and my entire life has been lived within those circles. So I've heard this portion preached hundreds of times. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it. Because it was preached on the platform in so-called gospel meetings. It was the center of themes at conferences. And I come from a church where that was a big thing. It, was, it formed the framework for Sunday school classes. So John chapter 3 and verse 16 has always been the focal point. And so one thing stood out to me very clearly. It appeared to those who preached this portion that the first 15 verses didn't exist. They go straight to John chapter 3 verse 16 and preach John chapter 3 verse 16 from whatever they had in their heads. And I say that graciously because so much has been said about this verse which is in the center of a, of a portion that has to be read contextually. So much has been said because of people believed and they brought their theology to the text. And so they clouded and colored and changed the text because they were intent on getting their theology across. We cannot do that. We cannot let our thoughts, our opinions shape the text. The text shapes us, shapes what we think, shapes what we believe, and shapes how we present it. So... John was inspired to write the entire book and the entire chapter. And verses 1 to 15 of John chapter 3 is inspired writing. And so we cannot just jump into chapter 3 verse 16 without looking at the context of where this is found. Now, I'm going to resist going to chapter 3 verse 16 too early. We're not going to get there this morning. We're not going to get there for a little while. Because you have to understand the way John builds up the framework to get there. And then what it actually says. Because we don't understand what's taking place. We are quick to then make John say things he did not say. So I've, this, I've, I've this divided this morning's sermon, which is as an overall uh, title of the only way to get into the kingdom of God. And this is really part one of that. I've divided this morning's sermon up into three parts. Uh, and we're not going to get to all of it. But then let's, let's go down this road. The first part is from is verses 1 to 3 which is a dialogue between two rabbis. Verses 4 to 8 is a division between two kingdoms. And verses 9 to 10 is a denouncement of the teacher's credentials. Could I get another two? So you have to just make do with what I've got there. But it certainly starts with a D. So a denouncement of the teacher's credentials. And each of those sections is uh, started by this phrase, Nicodemus said to him. You look at when we ever see Nicodemus say something to him, Jesus responds in a way which flabbergasts Nicodemus. 
a dialogue between two rabbis. Verse 1 to verse 3 sets the tone for this exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus. It's very important that we spend some time considering these verses. These opening verses are essential. We can't just gloss over them. John has taken the time to name the, per- the person who approaches Jesus Christ. And he's quick to give the readers a clear picture of who is, who is involved. There's a Pharisee, and there is the omniscient Son of God. Those are the two men who are having a dialogue, a discussion. Those are the two men who are recorded here by the evangelist as talking about something. Nicodemus is just being what he is, a Pharisee. And we'll get to more of that later on. And Jesus is just being who he is, the all-knowing God. And in this passage, from uh, chapter 2, which we'll go to very shortly, we see that Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's God. And he knows the deepest recesses of men's hearts. The rest of this dialogue in chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, takes its lead from who these two men are. Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We tend to look at Nicodemus in a very poignant way. We, we, we tend to think of him with tenderness. When I hear people speak about Nicodemus, they, they, they often present him as friendly and affable, uh, in a favorable light. Yet all we know about this man is either recorded here, and every other thing recorded about him refers back to this event. So what do we know about this man? We know that he is a Pharisee. And that it's by itself is almost all we need to know. The Pharisees are never betrayed in a favorable light in the New Testament. You can go anywhere. And you see the, Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. It's never a pretty picture. He goes out to get them. He goes out to, to, to drag them to the understanding that they are exactly the opposite of what the leaders of Israel should have been. Every meeting between Jesus and the Pharisees was confrontational. With the Pharisees being roundly denounced by the Lord for their hypocrisy. This is significant. Jesus never addresses the Pharisees in a favorable light. I'm going to go to Matthew 23. I'm going to read almost the entire chapter for you to hear what the Pharisees looked like in the eyes of Jesus. You have to understand that to get understanding of what is happening in John chapter 3. So go to Matthew chapter 23, please, in John chapter 3. Go to Matthew 23, please, and I want to give you an understanding of what a Pharisee looks like, what it looks like in the Scriptures, and how Jesus addresses the Pharisees. John chapter 23. This is uh, generally known as the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For, the, for they preach, but do not practice. What Jesus is saying right here is that when they are teaching the word of Moses correctly, do that, because you're obeying Moses, not the Pharisees. But don't do as they do. Down to verse 13. Jesus starts speaking and condemning the Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, 
you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater than gold, the gold of the temple or that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and of all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. <laughs> Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? You cannot read that portion and think that Jesus had a good relationship with the Pharisees. You have to be blind. You have to be blind, deaf, dumb, and stupid. It's clear. It's so crystal clear, it's almost hard to read. And yet, this is the relationship between Jesus and all the Pharisees. He doesn't exclude anyone. He says Pharisees, an all-inclusive term, a term that encompassed everyone in that group. Back to John 3, verse 1. Nicodemus would be included in the denunciation by the Lord. Nicodemus was not a believer. He did not believe in Jesus no matter what he may have believed about Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee to the core. And we see this clearly from his station in life, from who he was, and how he was recognized. And the fact that he was not a believer is confirmed by those who who shared the pharisaical uh, role with him. This is confirmed in John chapter 7, verse 40 to 41, where the Pharisees say uh, of those who had, who had gone to uh, arrest Jesus and came back empty-handed, and the Pharisees say, none of the Pharisees believe in this man, this deceiver. Nicodemus does speak up, and we'll go there at another time. Nicodemus does speak up in defense of Jesus, but it's not a... A stringent defense, his conscience may have been pricked, it's not clear, but he's still classed with the Pharisees, and it's unlikely he was saved at that time. The Pharisees recognized each other for what they were, and they knew that no one in their circles, at least outwardly, claimed to be a follower 
of this deceiver from Galilee. The man who opposed Jesus that night belonged to a group of men who were Jesus' greatest antagonists. Not even the Sadducees got this kind of dealing. Not even the Roman uh, uh, authorities got this kind of dealing. The words of Jesus spoke to the Pharisees were sharp and deep and cutting because they had the blood of Israel on their hands. He approached with words that were respectful and cordial, but he was still an enemy of Christ. This becomes clear as the narrative unfolds. This man was a Pharisee. And all we know about Pharisees was part of this man's life. Not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a ruler. We are told that he was more than just a run-of-the-mill Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. John tells us that. John says he was a ruler of the Jews. In other words, he belonged to a group of men who was, for all intents and purposes, the parliament of Israel. He was, this was effectively the Jewish parliament and only the most noble, the most educated, the most politically connected, the most affluent. Nicodemus, he tells us, was probably the third richest man in Jerusalem. Only the most affluent were included in this party. It was very likely that the members of this ruling party, together with his prominent status as as the teacher of Israel, caused him to confront Jesus in that night. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a teacher, he was a prominent person, and as a member of the Jewish ruling council, he would have been responsible to find out about any teacher who came with what they considered to be false teaching. Not that Jesus taught false teaching, but he certainly did not teach what they considered to be true. They had taken Judaism and twisted it into something which was impossible to live. And it's clear from John 7 verse 47 that the Pharisees regarded Jesus as a deceiver. And so Nicodemus goes out to interrogate a deceiver. Make no mistake about that. This was not a cordial meeting of men of like minds in a comfortable place. This was a confrontation. And it's very possible that this lay behind the reason that Nicodemus wants to meet Jesus to scrutinize his credentials. He wants to meet this one to scrutinize his credentials and make a finding about his authenticity. This colors what Nicodemus says when he greets Jesus. Understand this. It's coming from a group of people, from a political uh, party, from a particular religious persuasion that was totally against Jesus and thought he was a deceiver, not a teacher. He comes to find out what his credentials are, and he comes to try and see if he is authentic. But he has no idea how swiftly Jesus turns the tables on him. This man's in for a surprise, a surprise he does not expect. So not only is he a Pharisee, and not only is he a ruler, but he's also a rabbi. Nicodemus would have been the recipient of this title every single day of his life. He was one of those uh, who Jesus said, uh, the Pharisees, they love to be called rabbi. And this man, of all the Pharisees, would have been called a rabbi par excellence. He was a rabbi of note. Jesus refers to his role as um, the teacher of Israel and would automatically be called rabbi. So we find Nicodemus comes not only as a Pharisee and a ruler, but as a rabbi to meet Jesus. But this man, Nicodemus, is no ordinary teacher. Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. And that is significant. For when you see the way he dialogues with Jesus, 
The questions he asks, Jesus will eventually say to him, how can you not understand what I'm saying to you? How can you, the teacher of Israel, a man schooled, acquainted with, and who has memorized huge parts of the Old Testament, how can you understand what is plain and simple to understand? This man, other rabbis would have consulted him on issues of the law. His commentary on the law would carry tremendous weight. He was at the pinnacle of the religious society. Young scholars would have done all they could to be his student. Remember Paul? Paul was, was able to um, raise his studentship under Gamaliel as something significant. And people who had studied under Nicodemus would say, well, I am a student of Nicodemus. It would carry weight. Immediately, their words would be counted as being significant because the teacher would have been significant. He was Indeed, a pinnacle of religious society. He could have been considered the Pope of Jerusalem. That is his, that was his religious and theological standing from their viewpoint. This man was no small fry. He was rich. He was powerful. He was astute. He was the creme de la creme of Jewish religious leadership. It was this man, verse 2, who came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This greeting is noteworthy uh, because of the background of the person Nicodemus, but also the way he addresses Jesus. He calls Jesus rabbi. This is in effect saying to Jesus, my teacher, my master. That's what rabbi means. Rabbi is a, uh, a term that comes out of a Jewish background. And we say rabbi, Hero said Chabi, uh, but it meant that. My teacher, my master. Uh, and so people have taken that and said that Nicodemus was very cordial, very accommodating, very nice. I'd be very careful. This man was a group of people who were called vipers, snakes, and sons of hell. Uh, he was part of that group. It was common knowledge that Jesus had not studied formally, and therefore the Jews were flabbergasted by his learning. John chapter 7 verse 15 says that. They couldn't understand how this man, who was from a poor family, from the backwoods of Judea, from an insignificant town, born to a poor family who had been in obscurity for 30 years, suddenly comes and speaks the words that he speaks with authority. They were flabbergasted. And Nicodemus approaches him knowing that, and his words says that we know that you are a teacher from God. Was he being polite? Perhaps. Was this a ploy to put Jesus off his guard? Maybe. We don't know. We have to read what we can from the text and see what we can discern from being, him being a Pharisee. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Who is Nicodemus speaking on behalf of? He says, we know, in verse 2. Who is the we? He refers to. One of the reasons why I want to be careful not to go to John 3.16 first is because we lose a lot of the context by cutting it short. Now, this 
section we're reading this morning actually starts in the chapter before. Uh, it really starts up there. So, go back just one chapter to chapter 2 of John's, chapter, of John's epistle. John's gospel, sorry. John's gospel, chapter 2. Um, and we pick up from verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he did no one to bear witness about him for himself knew what was in man. So, as we go back to uh, John chapter 2, we see this account of crowds meeting and listening to Jesus, seeing the signs he has been doing and cannot but believe that he is someone special and they believe in his name. That's what the text says. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And so we ask the question, they believed, but were they saved? And this is an important point to note because this entire uh, section from chapter 2, verse 23, down to chapter 3, verse 36, is about believing. And what that believing means, and when that believing is real, it's mentioned at least nine times, the word believing in some form, in this section. And so we cannot overlook the fact that these people believed and they believed in the name of Jesus. The question we ask is, what did they believe and were they saved? If we stop reading just there, we may assume that these people who believed in the name of Jesus had to be saved. After all, is that what we say to people? Just believe in the name of Jesus and you are saved? How often have we said that? Simply believe. That's all you have to do. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. But the full reading of these verses clears up any confusion we may have about the authenticity of their faith. This text shows their faith wasn't real. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That word entrust and the word that was used by them, they believed, it's exactly the same word. It's the same word that they believed and Jesus did not believe in their believing. That's all the same. Jesus knew that their belief was not a belief of saving faith. And the reason he's able to do this is because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for himself knew what was in man. That group in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, they believed, weren't saved. You say, hold a second, they believed. Well, let John clear it up for us as you go through his, uh, his own words. We may be fooled by someone claiming the name of Jesus. But no one fools Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 21, he says this about people who claim to believe in him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you have ever said, uh, I believe in Jesus... And you have no awareness of having repented of your sin and having received faith to believe and having entrusted yourself to Him because you know you don't deserve that salvation. If your belief is just a mental ascent, then you are one of these people. Lord, Lord, uh, no one who says to me, Lord, Lord, enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast the demons in your name. 
and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just doing something in the name of Jesus for the sake of uh, making your work look authentic uh, doesn't mean you belong to him. You may think you know him. He doesn't know you. And that is the crux of the matter. The phrase in the name of Jesus has no magical powers, nor can it be used to give you special powers. In Acts chapter 19, a few chapters on from where we read this morning, uh, Paul is going through Asia. And Paul is teaching and preaching. He's about two years in Asia, and he's performing many extraordinary miracles. So much of the people even collecting his clothing to try and make people healed through that. And then we find that he comes across a group of men, um, Jewish exorcists, who were the sons of Sceva. And these, these men, these sons of Sceva, were not Christians, not believers. They saw what Paul did and said, we want that. Just like Simon Majors, we want that. And so they go to those who are indwelt by spirits and they say to them, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Come out. And so, the spirits, the evil spirits say to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them, and overpowered them. And they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Just because they claimed to be doing this in the name of Jesus didn't make it authentic. And just because you claim to believe in Jesus doesn't make your belief authentic. Be careful about touching that phrase, the name of Jesus, to anything Simply because you think by doing so, you will get divine approval. In John chapter 2 verse 23, we have a record of people who believed in the name of Jesus, but who were not saved. Now just to be clear, you may say, but hold a second. Aren't we supposed to believe? Isn't that what John says? Yes, John's whole purpose of writing this book is that people may believe, but John defines what that belief looks like. The object of that faith is very clearly stated by the writer of his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 30, which is the whole purpose. It's a central theme, a central thought of this book. This is why the book was written. Now he says, John says in chapter 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In this book we have seven significant miracles and signs. He did many more, but these are recorded, and they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the kind of belief that stems from a faith. That's a saving faith. Belief that does not find its motivation in the will of man, this is the kind of belief we need. Its motivation is the Word of God. When we come to the Scriptures uh, for salvation with our own understanding, with our human intellect, with that which we have come to conclusions about, we will not be saved. Which is why, in so many cases, apologetics loses the plot unless it is embedded in evangelism to the end. This book, this, this book uh, the Gospel of John, addresses both those areas. It's both, both apologetic and evangelistic. In fact, it's more than just apologetic. It's polemic, but it's apologetic. It deals with defending the truth, but it's also evangelistic, and it reaches out to those who need to be born Again, it is, it is the, the direct outcome of the Word of God 
applied to the heart of the, of the unbeliever so that he or she is compelled to believe. More of that when we get to John chapter 3, verse 16. Whatever the crowds in John 2, 25 believed, it was not the saving faith that believes. John 22, verse 30 is about believing unto salvation. John 2, verse 23 is about a belief that falls short of salvation. It was obvious to all who saw the miracles of Jesus that he came from God. For the very miracles testified to this. Why did they believe in his name? Because he could not deny the power of the signs he performed. They had never seen a miracle in their lifetime before Jesus came. <laughs> Neither their parents or their grandparents had seen a miracle. No one living in this time of Jesus knew anyone who had seen a miracle. We think miracles just happened all over the Bible. Miracles are scarce. <laughs> miracle signs sent by God are scarce and for a specific purpose. For the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he never performed a single miracle. We know that. We are told that the first miracle he performed was in John's Gospel was in Cana. Before the miracles performed by Jesus Christ, there'd been no miracles for about 600 years. So them seeing the miracles of Jesus, the signs, would have been as convincing as we saw today. Because they were not exposed to miracles. What they saw dumbfounded them. They couldn't get enough of it. And so, when Jesus arrives on the scene at the age of 30 and performs signs and miracles, they have to take notice. They have to make up their minds about him. They have to respond. And many respond by believing in his name, but this is not a saving belief. They didn't have saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. So when someone says they believe in the name of Jesus, be careful. Don't assume that they are saved. This is exactly what the parable of the soils is about. And we're not going to go there, but I'll just bring to mind one portion as it's recorded in Luke chapter, chapter 8. It says of that third group of people, verse 13 of that chapter, and the, ones on the rock and, and the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing they fall away. In other words, they were never saved. They had a belief. They believed something. They were, in, they were, they were enthralled by what they heard. They believed they could not stand the scrutiny and the test that came their way. These were the same in John chapter 2, verse 23. And Nicodemus was no different. Just like the person in Luke 18, who believes but for a while and then falls away, the people in 2.23 saw the miracles, had only a super, superficial belief, they had been drawn to Christ, but they had not been drawn close enough. That is why Jesus did not believe in their believing, because he knew their hearts. He saw right through them. He knew what they thought before they thought the thought. He knew their hearts. He knew their motives. He knew their desires. So when Nicodemus walks into the night to meet Jesus, he's got no idea what he's in store for. So when Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He identifies himself with a crowd in chapter 2 who believed and yet were still lost in their sin. They were still out of the kingdom of God, and so was he. They had not been born again, and neither had he. And therefore their intentions toward Jesus were not genuine, and neither was his. We know this, we know that we are part of the crowd because Nicodemus steps up to Jesus 
With the same words we find recorded in chapter 2, verse 23. It says, in chapter 2, to verse 23, we know because of the signs you do. And because, G- and because Jesus knows what was in man, you saw right through Nicodemus' roots when he uses the same words. He says, we know that you are a teacher of God because of the signs you do. And so Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus had not asked. This is astounding. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, uh, speaks patronizing words to him, uh, superficially uh, polite and genteel, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher of God, for no one can do the signs that you do if God is with him. And Jesus says, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't know what. Uh, I didn't ask a question. I'm trying to compliment you. Um, I said something. Jesus is not interested. Most people who have acknowledged the compliment may even have felt flattered and given that it came from the teacher of Israel. Remember, this is no ordinary man who is paying you a compliment. This is the teacher of Israel. Most people would have tried to build on Nicodemus' words. But Jesus is not most people. He is unlike all other people. He saw right into the heart of this Pharisee. And he knew exactly what drove Nicodemus and what Nicodemus needed in his life. The text does not state what kind of response Nicodemus expected from Jesus. But it wasn't this. He never expected this from a man who he considered to be less than him. He was the teacher of Israel. This was a a wandering teacher who came from the backwoods of nowhere. He was the richest man, the third richest man in Jerusalem. This man didn't even have a place to live. He was a man who uh, hobnobbed with uh, the rich and the famous in Jerusalem. This man walked around with fishermen and, and publicans and sinners. And so if you, hold, if, you hold, if you hold Nicodemus before society and Jesus, they say, it's no competition. Uh, this man, this Pharisee, outstrips him on every level. However, make Jesus who he is, the Son of God, in the flesh. And Nicodemus is just another sinful, depraved man needing the Savior to save him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is indeed a phenomenal for he saw right into the heart of Nicodemus. Knew exactly what drove Nicodemus and what he was needing in his life. And the text doesn't state what he says, what Nicodemus expected, but we know from what is recorded that he was surprised. Jesus' response throws him off his God. It takes Nicodemus completely by surprise. Not only does Jesus answer the question that was not asked, but he begins his response, it's already a response, not an answer to the question, with attention grabbing clarity. He says, truly, Truly. Now, don't glance over that. That's hugely significant. Someone has written, uh, one one of the commentators, the word amen, which is the word truly, is a most remarkable word. It was transliterated directly from the Hebrew into the Greek of the New Testament, then into Latin and into English. And so in all those languages, when we say amen, we all know it's a word of significance. So it it is practically a universal word. It's been called the best known word in human speech. That may be the case. The word is directly related, in fact, it's almost identical to the Hebrew word for believe. 
So when Jesus was saying, truly, truly, he was saying, amen, amen, or in the Greek, amen, he's saying, what I'm about to say needs to be believed. This is truth of the greatest uh, uh, um, measure. And so when it's used at the beginning of a discourse, as it's done here, he's saying, surely this is truthful. Wake up. Open your ears. Don't be distracted. What I'm about to tell you now is of significant importance. The magnitude of which may escape you if you do not pay attention. Pay attention. Truly, truly. By using these words, Jesus is priming Nicodemus to hear something that will blow his mind. He's going to go away with a man with very different thoughts in his head. Bear in mind that Nicodemus has just acknowledged, he's just said that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. The implication being that whatever Jesus says or does must be true. So his opening gambit sets the stage. Because if Jesus says anything now he, and, he, and he denies it, all Jesus must say is, but you just said I'm the teacher from God. And that indeed is a strong place to be in. However, we'll see later on that his responses are strange nonetheless. Jesus addresses the very thing that the Pharisee was most guilty of. He says here uh, in verse 3 of chapter 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Nicodemus had to hear. That's what Nicodemus needed to be aware of. When we read in um, Matthew 23, the very first woe is about the kingdom of God. The very first woe that... uh, Jesus speaks against the Pharisees is on this very point. Nicodemus needs to get into the kingdom of God. And as a Pharisee, he should have known how to get into the kingdom of God. Yet in chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 13, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. They prevented people from entering the narrow way that leads to life, and rather they forced people to go through the Broadway by imposing work-based salvation on their lives. And those people perished with the Pharisees that they followed. Jesus negates their works of uh, their works-based salvation by presenting to Nicodemus the only way that anyone gets into the kingdom of God. There's only one way to get into the kingdom of God, to be born again. That's the only way. It's clear from this passage. You can dance around it, you can add to it, subtract from it, paint it in different ways and use, uh, allegorize it. You miss the point. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to come by way of the new birth. So what's he talking about, this kingdom of God? We will deal a bit with this later on in my next division, which we won't get to this morning. Uh, a division between two kingdoms, but just briefly, to prepare ourselves when we get there. The kingdom of God can be considered in four ways. Number one, there is the way it is described in Psalm 103, which says the kingdom of God, uh, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. So all of creation is under the sovereign rule of the king of glory. God is king over all. And so in that sense, all of creation uh, is the kingdom of God. He's sovereign. He rules. He oversees everyone. Satan's not in total control. The authority's not in total control. God is totally in control. He runs the ship. He's in the captain's seat. 
He flies a, 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 a spacecraft. You can do what you like. He is there. He may not always show himself there, but to you, or you may miss seeing him, but God remains the king of his kingdom. And all of, all of creation is the kingdom. Secondly, and in a more narrow way, the kingdom of God is a spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who are willing to submit to God's authority. Those who defy God's authority and refuse to submit to him are not part of the kingdom of God. In contrast, those who acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ and gladness into God's rule in their hearts, they are part of the kingdom of God. In this sense, this kingdom of God is spiritual. And Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. And he preached that repentance is necessary to be part of that kingdom, Matthew chapter 4. The kingdom of God can be equated with the sphere of salvation that is evident in John chapter 3, verse 5 to 7, where Jesus says the kingdom of God must be entered into by being born again. That's a spiritual kingdom. And so as in, whereas in the natural kingdom of creation, all are part of that kingdom, only some become part of this kingdom of God. There's a third sense in which the kingdom of God exists, and that is when Christ will rule on the throne of David in the millennium. And then again, Christ is king, and he establishes a kingdom over which he is supreme, and there will be people who are there just because you are alive at the time. And fourthly, the kingdom of God can be seen as, as the eternal state in which he sets up a new heaven and a new earth. And again, everybody who gets into that kingdom is there because they are there. But when it comes to uh, the, the, the spiritual kingdom of God, one that exists right now, the only way into that kingdom is by way of the new birth, by being born again. That's clear. That goes without any other explanation required. Jesus says to Nicodemus, a man who should have known this because he knew the Old Testament, Jesus said to him, you must be born again to get into the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus wasn't born again. He was in the kingdom of God and was just being a Pharisee who was out to get Jesus Christ. From this point onwards, the entire focus is on being born again. The entire focus is on being part of uh, that kingdom of God that is only available to those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believing that he is the Son of God. And so John chapter 20 verse 30 becomes real in their lives. And they believe not with an with a unbelieving faith, a superficial faith, a faith that goes so far and no further, but they believe with a faith that changes them completely. And the entire analogy that Jesus uses in John chapter 3 is about being changed completely outside of your own power. It's about being born again. And we will go through that when we understand clearly that you have no power of being born into this world as a baby. And being born into the kingdom of God requires a power outside of yourself. And we'll get to that in our next sermon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one who has made it possible that people who did not deserve any of your grace, that creatures who deserved only your judgment, your condemnation, and punishment in hell, that these are able to become citizens in the kingdom of God. And we thank you for the ways it has been made possible by the person of your Son. 
For not only did he do works, it showed he was a son of God, but he died on the cross of Calvary to make a way open for us who are unable to save ourselves. We pray that as we consider your word this morning and at any other time, we may be drawn to this fact that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. And by believing in him, we become children of God. For his name's sake, we pray this. Amen.